0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View, a nice little jam-packed episode. Um, NFL football, MOB free agency, there's some huge contracts that were dealt out that we should probably talk about. And of course, the White Lotus season two finale. I uh, I re- I enjoyed this season way more than season one. Um, I thought the actors and performances and the storylines were way more interesting, um, way more, I guess, complicated, and it's really just like an anxiety fest the entire time you're watching this show. So uh, I really enjoyed it more than season one, like I said. So we'll we'll talk about the finale a little bit, uh, probably... We'll probably talk about it before football. We'll end the episode with football because that takes the longest. Um, but we got some free agency and also some some basketball. I, I we'll talk briefly about basketball. There's some some drama brewing. Uh, the Suns are kind of floundering. And there was drama with them and the Pelicans. They played back-to-back games against each other. Some drama about, you know, taking a last-second shot with Zion. He, he did like a 360 windmill to end the game when it was already over and that whole unwritten unwritten rule nonsense that I think needs to be talked about. Uh, And we'll just check in with some of the teams. So let's start with MLB free agency. Obviously, it's been a huge one. Uh, There was a whole debacle with John Heyman and Aaron Judge last week. Uh, Heyman saying... He's going to San Francisco, then he walks it back. That's the huge one. But at the end of the day, Judge signed a nine-year, $360 million contract with the New York Yankees. He will be a New York Yankee for the rest of his career. Um, He will most likely, I would imagine, be named the captain of the New York Yankees, the first one in almost eight years now or, uh, seven, what was September Jeter retired right after the season. That was, uh, so yeah, eight years. Um, and yeah, which is wild, obviously. Um, but it, it's something that I think most fans would expect. Like that, that was kind of like a, a thing that, that people realize if he does sign with the Yankees, he's going to be named the captain. Like, why wouldn't you? He, he's the MVP. He's a, a great dude on and off the field. His teammates love him. The fans love him. Great leadership. There's there's no reason to not name him captain. So I would expect that before the season starts uh, that he would get that contract. Shout out to Hal Steinbrenner, who apparently was on vacation in Italy. He called up Aaron Judge. He said, do you want to be a Yankee? Judge said yes. Basically, Hal asked how much. And he's, he's like, I need another year on the contract. And Hal said, okay, you got it. And that was it. Because Brian Cashman was allegedly playing hardball, like he does with all free agents that Yankees fans love. And it wasn't working out. Judge was about to leave, go to San Francisco. Steinbrenner stepped in, said, what do you need? He said, give me the extra year. And he got it. So I'm glad that got done. I was really nervous for a while that it wasn't going to happen. Um, but it all worked out. But let's let's go over... Some of the, the top free agents, some of the big money. As for the Yankees, they lose Jamison Tyone. He goes to the Cubs on a four-year, $68 million contract. Um, so that's a loss for them. The Mets, obviously, they lost DeGrom to Texas for five years, $185 million. They signed Verlander for two, eighty-six. million. Um, they lose Taiwan Walker, shockingly, to the Phillies for four years, $72 million. But... They get this dude from Japan, who I didn't even like know exactly who he was. I think they signed him. They also got Brandon Nimmo. We'll go. We'll circle back to the uh, Japanese player that they signed. Uh, Brandon Nimmo got an eight-year contract for one hundred sixty-two million dollars. They're getting Brandon Nimmo for twenty million dollars a year, which honestly uh, I think is a steal. Uh, but basically, Kodai Senga. That's his name, Kodai Senga. Uh, five years, 75 million for the Japanese-born pitcher to come over to Queens and pitch for the Mets. So they replaced Taiwan Walker and Jacob DeGrom with Justin Verlander and uh, Kodai Senga. Which I'm not obviously. I, I don't really know anything about this dude. Um, I know the, the the bigger Japanese player that was on the market went to the Red Sox. Um, I think uh, apparently he, this guy's a he's a star outfielder who's an on-base machine. That's what uh, the Red Sox got. Masataka Yoshida. He, they signed him from the Oryx Buffaloes. Uh, five years, $90 million for him. And the Red Sox, I don't really know what they're doing because they signed this dude to a contract. Granted, it's like half of what... Uh, Xander Bogarts got San Diego. What a great name for that! But that was a a crazy contract. San Diego is really just opening up the checkbook. They're signing everyone. They uh they give Bogarts eleven years, two hundred and eighty million dollars for Xander Bogarts to be the starting shortstop at the San Diego Padres. Which leads a question: What exactly happens to Fernando Tatis Jr.? I know they were. Um, I mean, obviously he's suspended for what half half the year next year, um, and or not not half the year. What do you get? Eighty games because it was the first time uh, first time offender for the for the PEDs. So I think it's eighty games, eighty two games, something like that. And he missed like I think thirty while he was injured. He served the suspension technically. I'm pretty sure. So maybe forty games next year he has, but. When he comes back, what is that gonna be like? I, I I feel like it's pretty clear at this point, this is no longer his team. He was he was the face of the franchise. They gave him that mega contract. Um they they wanted him to be, you know, the guy for them. He before he got, you know, injured before the season, uh he was declining rapidly defensively at shortstop. They experimented with him in the outfield uh, for a bit. I'm not sure how that stuck. Maybe they'll they'll try that again. But they're gonna find they're gonna find him f- somewhere to put him because um, he he's good at baseball. Uh, I don't I don't know if it was the PEDs or if he's actually good at baseball, but we can assume he's still gonna be pretty good when he comes back. And you just signed Bogarts, who is a good, a very good defensive shortstop. So he's gonna be there. You know, but uh, when Tatis comes back, he's not playing shortstop. So where where is he going to be? Um, and also, it's not his team anymore. Like I said, he he was the guy, but when he got busted for PEDs, that locker room when they when the reporters were videos I saw at least reporters when they were asking questions from like Machado and a couple of these other guys. I know, uh, I think Mike Clevenger was really critical of Tatis saying he needs to like grow up basically and, and you know, own up to his mistakes and just and suffers the consequences <laughs> of his actions. So Clevenger, I think, came down pretty hard on him. Machado was just kind of like, you know, he hasn't been here all year anyway because he's been injured. So we've, we're you know, we're just going to keep playing the same kind of baseball we've been playing all year. And it's Machado's team as far as I'm concerned. It, it's Machado's team... It was Machado's team, and then Tatis kind of blew up, and everyone was like, he's the future, he's the future, he's the future. Now he's gone. It's Machado's team again. And I think even when Tatis does come back, it's still going to be Machado's team. I really do believe that. Like, they they clearly rally around that guy. You remember the argument they got into in the dugout last year when they missed the playoffs because they were bad? Um, Machado was screaming at Tatis, basically, to grow up. You know, stop acting. Stop acting like a child. They were screaming in the dugout at each other, and Machado was clearly the aggressor there because he was pissed off at something Tatis did, I guess, or or didn't do. Uh, but it, it's he's the odd man out now, Tatis. Obviously, they're gonna find a spot for him because again, he's talented. But in terms of what that locker room thinks of him and what those people, the players think of him, and and what the ownership and 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 front office think of him. It's a sharp decline from what it was because you could not have been higher than Fernando Tatis going into this year, and then he gets injured, and then the PEDs, and now it's suddenly your your stock plummeted. So a lot of pe- some people I read were speculating that maybe San Diego would even be open to trading Tatis. Uh, I- I'm not sure how many baseball clubs are really equipped to take on that kind of or I shouldn't say equipped. How many baseball clubs are willing to take on a uh, a massive contract like Tatis, uh even though he is very very young and talented, that's still a lot of years and a lot of money that you got to be responsible for. So, I'm not sure if a, a trade is very likely, but you know, if they did find a suitable partner, I wouldn't be surprised if the Padres pulled the trigger cuz they seem pretty well-rounded right now. Obviously, more talent can't hurt, but Uh, You got Juan Soto, who you're also going to have to... You have two more years of team control with Juan Soto, but you are going to have to pay him at one point. I would imagine San Diego is not just going to let him walk away for nothing. That would be asinine and and a malpractice. So, yeah, you're going to have up to four mega deals on your team. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Obviously, the Padres don't really much care... Uh, They're willing to shell out whatever they want, but that's a lot of money for Xander Bogarts. And another shortstop that got a big deal, Trey Turner to Philadelphia for 11 years, $300 million for Trey Turner. Astronomical money. Um, he Again, he's, I think, 28, 29 years old. So is Bog, uh, Bogarts. I think he's 27 or 28. So these guys are locked up. For you know, over the next decade into their late 30s, Trey Turner, his game's gonna age pretty gracefully. Obviously, his speed is a huge part of it right now, but even when his speed does start to decline, you just talk about defensively, he's a he's a great shortstop. And offensively, he doesn't rely on power. He has a fantastic eye, like he's an on-base machine, he hits for average, he draws a ton of walks, like he is an unbelievable leadoff hitter, and that's going to age, his game's going to age really well with that. Xander Bogart's pretty much the same thing too, really good defensive shortstop, um, you know, he has some years where he hits for power, uh, but mostly speaking, like he's a very good high average, anywhere between like 290 and 310 he'll hit in a year. Um, Really good RBI guy, so it's great signings for both teams, in my opinion. Um, I think the Yankees, ideally, they they signed some other guys. They did lose Tyon. That's a huge blow to them for the regular season in terms of starting rotation. Just re-signing Aaron Judge isn't enough. They need to get maybe one or two more guys in there to help with the rotation, maybe positional play. My biggest hope for the Yankees... We have Judge locked up. That's he's the cornerstone of that franchise for the next 10 years uh or 9 years. So I'm happy with that. But they need my my biggest hope for them is that they play the young guys. Like just just let the kids play. Volpe, Volpe whenever he's ready to come up. Peraza and Cabrera should be in the opening day lineup. I, I 100% believe that. Uh, and personally, I think they should be playing shortstop and third base. That should be your left side of the infield for the foreseeable future, at least till Volpe comes up, and then you can kind of figure out what to do with uh, Cabrera, probably stick him in the outfield somewhere, move Peraza over to third maybe, or and let Volpe play shortstop. I think Volpe is a very good defensive shortstop from what I hear. I don't know, man. You, you just got to make it work. All three of those guys, like they got to be able to they they have to be able to play. They have to be able to play. And you saw like I I can't I feel like I'm talking to a wall, but like well, I am literally talking to a wall, but uh you you have to be able to see what's going on around you in the league. Like look at the Astros, man. They replace these stars that leave with younger guys. And a lot of teams do that. Um you know, Jeremy Pena won World Series MVP and wasn't even top three in American League Rookie of the Year voting, and he won World Series MVP, starting shortstop for the Astros. And sad. like, you, you just got, I'm not saying that's going to happen for whoever, you know, the Yankees decide to bring up and play in their farm system, but you got to let them play at some point, otherwise what do you know what you have, you know? So I could talk in circles about the Yankees and what they should do and all that, but you guys understand my point. Um, so Judge, Turner, Bogarts, DeGrom, Nimmo, uh, Edwin Diaz was like one of the first guys to uh, secure a big-time deal in free agency, five years, $102 million from the Mets. Wilson Contreras hilariously was like, I knew I wanted to be a Cardinal when... Albert Pujols hit like his six hundred and ninety fifth home run against. It was against the Cubs. He hit that home run, and Contreras was saying he was sitting in the dugout, wanting, yearning to play for a club with so much tradition and, and like expectations. I'm like, bro, you play for the Cubs. There's not many more teams with tradition, you know. But he just to say that about a rival. He's going. He's going to. Uh, I think he might. He's probably going to get booed. They were applauding him when they. Everyone thought he was going to get traded at the at the deadline, and then he didn't. Which I think shame on the Cubs. They should have traded him at the deadline because now he just walked for nothing, uh, and you weren't competing. So I don't know what you were doing. But yeah, uh, Wilson Contreras to St. Louis, five years, eighty-seven and a half million for him. Uh, I talked about Jose Abreu. I think a couple weeks ago. Who else? Any any other big ones? Kershaw resigning for a year. Jock Peterson resigned for a year with the uh, the Giants. Cody Bellinger went to Chicago for a year, seventeen and a half million. I really hope he kind of figures it out in Chicago because he went from an MVP to a guy that's hitting like bottom of the lineup, fighting for playing time with the Dodgers. So I feel real bad for him. Um, who else? Not many else big names, but. Active free agency. Obviously, Judge was the big one. Everyone was kind of waiting for that to happen, especially after DeGrom left, Then everyone, and then Verlander signed with the Mets. We're like, okay, we got a couple of big guys out of the way. Now it's really just Judge. What are we doing with Judge? The night he signed, he was at the Bucks game with Tom Brady and, uh, like, greeting him in the tunnel. He's wearing a Mike Evans jersey, so that was pretty cool. But that's... MLB free agency so far. Um, obviously, it's not done. I don't think so. If uh, more contracts happen, we'll be sure, or I'll be sure to cover them on this podcast, like I always do. But active stuff. I'm happy as a Yankees fan. Uh, I made a you know last week. I made comments. If you're a Mets fan, yeah, it sucks for Degrom, but you'll you'll be okay. You know, you had some good signings. You retained Nimo. You got the Japanese player uh, Senga. You got Verlander, obviously, re-signing Edwin Diaz. You lose Taiwan Walker, but that's okay, like I said, because you got Senga and Verlander to replace them. So you're good. I mean, Cohen's not sleeping, man. He's opening the checkbook. His, <laughs> that tax, that tax uh, is going to hurt. That luxury tax is going to hurt, man. Oh, boy. But to be a billionaire, right? Who really cares? Tens of millions of dollars in taxes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's a billionaire. Go nuts. Must be nice. Oh wait, we have a billionaire too, Hal Steinbrenner. He's working it out, I guess. Hopefully. Jesus. He, he, we need more. That's all I'll say. I'll end I'll end the the baseball free agency at that and we'll move on to uh some basketball news. So, the NBA has been the the West has been very tight. Uh the East has been a little bit of a of a cluster kind of weird things going on here with uh with the nba so in the west only five games separates the one seed from the 11th seed the timberwolves are the 11th seed currently at 13 and 13 and sitting atop of the west at the one seed shockingly is the new orleans pelicans at 18 and 8 memphis 17 and 9 denver is 16 and 10 uh Phoenix, 16 and 11. They've been struggling recently. Sacramento's been playing well, 14 and 11. Portland, 14 and 12. And that's the top six. The play in currently would be the Clippers, the Warriors, the Jazz, and Dallas. Whereas the East, a little bit more uh, diversity here. There's a nine game difference between the one seed and the 10 seed. The Celtics currently hold the best record in the NBA at 21 and six. Then you have the Bucks, 19 and seven. A little bit of a gap between uh, Cleveland and Brooklyn, who are 17 and 10. Brooklyn, 16 and 12. And then I feel like a much bigger gap. You have Philly, 14 and 12. Atlanta's 14 and 13. The Pacers and the Knicks also 14 and 13. Toronto's 13 and 14. And Miami is the 10th seed at 12 and 15. They've been banged up a little bit. Jimmy Butler has missed some time. But the East has been... I feel like last year it was flip-flop. There was so much of like a heavy stack on top in the West and then kind of mucking it up in the bottom, whereas the East, 1 through you know 8 or 9, was pretty close, all things considered. I, for a long time, we're only 25 games into the season, but for a majority of the season for the East... There was, um, like the Celtics and Bucks atop, or the and the Sixers atop, and then everyone else below was like within one or two games of each other. But now it seems to be an opposite. And something I want to talk about because it made some news is this rivalry that's clearly brewing between the Phoenix Suns and the Pelicans. The Suns have been struggling. They got absolutely embarrassed by like fifty points by the Celtics on. I think it was last Tuesday night. It was it it was pathetic. Like just flat out pathetic. It was the first game Chris Paul was back and they got the doors blown off of them. Um and that was two game three games in a row, really. Devin Booker struggled. He struggled against the Mavericks and Luca, where they, you know, they beat him opening night, they lost this time. Uh, he struggled against the Celtics, where they obviously they, as a team, they all struggled and they got the shit kicked out of them. And then he struggled against the first game against the Pelicans where the Suns lost and then they played the Pelicans again. He was out with I think it said hamstring tightness. He didn't even play in that game. Uh they bear I think they barely lost that game as well. But uh the the Pelicans are on fire. And they lost that second game against the the Pelicans. So the Suns played the Pelicans to get in in New Orleans. On Friday and then on Sunday, both in New Orleans, which I thought was weird. But they play again next Saturday, the 17th, uh, in Phoenix. So, that this three times in, in a week is pretty fierce. They won 128-117 on Friday, and then they won 129-124 in OT on Saturday. But something happened in one of the losses. I think it was the second one on Saturday where... Uh, after missing a shot as the time as the time was expiring, the Pelicans threw it all the way down court. I think it was Larry Nance struck it down court to Zion. He caught the ball, did a 360 windmill. The crowd went nuts. And then Cameron Payne, being a fake tough guy, and I love the Phoenix Suns. So me talking shit about them is you know something noteworthy. Noteworthy. Cameron Payne, fake tough guy that he is. Starts yapping away. They start kind of getting a little bit, you know, yelling and barking at each other. No one does anything. There's just some, you know, separation and some barking. No one want actually no one actually wants any smoke with each other. Um, and then it brought around that question. Is that bad sportsmanship? Should the Pelicans have not taken that shot? Should Zion not have taken that dunk until maybe after the buzzer expired? Should he have just held on to the ball and then given it to the official uh, as the time expired? Where's the sportsmanship? But... The Suns have done that. They they they've done that multiple times where like the clock's running out, the game's already secured, they went and they try and, you know they take a last second shot or something like that. I believe actually it happened um with like Bismack Biombo or whatever. Someone tried to take a last or Bismack tried to take a last second shot and someone like shoved him and fouled him. And was like, nah, like you don't do that. You don't do that. So I I get it. I think, um, you know, there There are two sides of the aisle, obviously, where the one is just like, hey, eat the clock. You know, there, there's no reason to, to take the shot. Who cares? The game's already won. Just hold the ball, eat the clock, expired, you know, go to the locker room, game's over. And then you have the other side of the aisle who's like, well, if you don't want them to score, play defense. You know, if you don't want them to embarrass you on the court after they beat you like that with a last-second shot, then play defense. Which I get to a degree. Um, I think Zion, you know, his was like, his wasn't, I, I only think it's funny because I think Chris Paul missed the shot. So, like, the clock's winding down, the Suns are still playing, he drives to the hoop, tries to lay it up, he misses, gets the rebound, then they throw it over to Zion, and then the Suns get mad. It's like, well, you're you're down, you're losing, the game's over, and you're still, like, playing To try and have like some inspiration or whatever to, you know, play hard until the whistle, final whistle sounds. But when the Pelicans throw down court to Zion to do a 360, now it's bad sportsmanship. So it's only bad sportsmanship because the winning team decided to take another shot instead of the losing team deciding to take another shot. Right? That's how that works. So I think it's a a bit weird and it's a bit hypocritical and it's a bit stupid really. But Zion and, and the Pelicans were obviously amped up. There's clearly some type of tension and rivalry brewing between the Pelicans and the Suns. Obviously, they came off a very intense playoff series against each other, but which Zion didn't participate in, by the way, which I think if he had, they would have won because Brandon Ingram was on a different level for the Pelicans um, in that series. But... Zion getting, you know, he's putting on a show for the fans. They came to see him. They came to see their team win, and and they did win. So to cap it off with a nice little 360 windmill dunk, something light, something casual, I, you know, I love that. If I'm a fan, obviously the players were like, oh, he's showboating. Yeah, well, you lost. Like, don't, if you didn't want that to happen, being down six with like, you know, five seconds left, four seconds left, don't try and take a shot or whatever, you know, just, just leave it alone. But it, it's all semantics. It's all stupid. I, I think that unwritten rule stuff, you know, it, it's, it's something with basketball where like some players hate it. Some other others don't care. Uh, generally the younger crowd is going to be like, Hey, do whatever you want really. And you know, sports football is the only one that has really regressed in that regard where you used to be able to talk smack, stand over someone, you know, jaw at them, maybe smack some helmets, really get it into a scruffle before things got separated. Now you do anything. You look at the sidelines and celebrate. You stand over someone after tackling them for too long. It's a personal foul flag, 15 yards and a first down. So players can't even do that anymore. And it's the only sport where it's like, that's the most intense and violent sport. And you're not even allowed to like, exert your adrenaline in any way by like you know showboating or doing anything like that with with people basketball the unwritten rule stuff like obviously you can't hand a ball off to someone after you like dunk it on them or something that's like uh that's a technical you can't do that anymore you can't hang on the rim for too long you can't you know there's you can't really talk too much shit really to other players without getting called for a technical but this stuff's okay this stuff's not going to get you a technical um so it's really the only way to kind of be like you know in your face suck it (laughs) to the other team without getting a technical is to do these like last second shots like that to really you know drive home the point that we're better than you and then baseball obviously i think more and more now that that unwritten rule nonsense with you know don't showboat if you hit a home run off someone uh Big moments, try and keep your cool, act like you've been there before is like a huge saying in baseball, right? Act like you've been there before. And you can use that across all sports, but specifically with baseball being like, you know, old school the way it is, that's a huge thing. Uh, that's kind of taken a huge step forward in terms of, uh, of allowing players to express their emotions in big-time situations. It's all semantics, and it's it's frankly... A little bit stupid. Just let whatever players do whatever they want. If you want to be a, a good sport about it or whatever, and you don't want to take the last shot because you think that makes you have better sportsmanship, then so be it. If if someone doesn't like you, and they really want to rub it in your face that we just beat your ass, and uh, they want to do a, a 360 dunk or whatever, more power to you. There's nothing you can do. You don't want them to do 360 dunk. Get on. Don't let them cherry pick. Get on the other side of the court and, and guard them. You know that that's all I gotta say about that. It, it's It's stupid, but it is it was something I saw that was kind of like dominating the headlines a little bit on uh, on the internet and stuff. So worth talking about, I guess. All right, let's uh, let's get into, I don't know. should we do NFL and then end with White Lotus? I'm gonna switch it up a little bit. I think we're gonna do that. let's Let's go with the NFL. And we'll go into uh, White Lotus afterwards. We'll start with Sunday night football: um, the Dolphins and the Chargers. Tua, this was a huge game for the uh, the Tua versus Herbert narrative. Obviously, they were taking back to back picks in the uh, in the draft. Chargers and Herbert were struggling. They were only six and six, uh, Miami eight and five, but Tua got off to a horrible start in this game, and he just he wasn't ten to twenty eight. I think he started three of fourteen, really really bad. He ended ten to twenty eight, one hundred forty five yards, one touchdown, which was a bomb to Tyreek Hill, um, and it, it was Herbert stole the spotlight, thirty nine of fifty one, three hundred sixty seven yards and a touchdown. Mike Williams in his return six catches 116 yards and a touchdown like Herbert was so accurate he was making so many great throws to Keenan Allen to Mike Williams he was really like the focal point of that offense and the Dolphins shout out but shout out to the Chargers defense honestly too because the Chargers defense was playing out of their minds like all game they had a really really good game plan for Tua and it worked they essentially completely Negated Waddle. Um, The Dolphins scored 17 points, three of which was at like the very end of the game. Uh, One of their touchdowns was actually a Jeff Wilson run that got fumbled, and the ball squirted out from underneath the pile and got picked up by Tyreek Hill, who he ran for a touchdown. Uh, And then the other one, I think, was a pass to Tyreek Hill or a pass to someone. Let me see. Was it? What? Because it says Tyreek has one touchdown, but that's not right. Yeah. Okay. So Tyreek Hill got the fumble recovery, and he also got the sixty-yard pass from Tua. The real thing I want to talk about here is the drive at the end of the game in the fourth quarter by Justin Herbert. It was the it was a a picture perfect drive by the Chargers and Justin Herbert because they started off I think maybe inside their ten, and they had a little less than 10 minutes on the clock. They drove all the way down the field, made the Dolphins burn all three of their timeouts, and took seven minutes off the game clock. Under three minutes left in the game, they kick a field goal to make it a nine-point game, two scores, two possessions, and the Dolphins get the ball back. Less than three minutes, no timeouts. It's a wrap. That was the definition of a picture-perfect drive. Obviously, like, yeah, uh, uh, great. A touchdown would be great, but they didn't care about the touchdown. They just wanted the field goal, like bare minimum. And that's what they got because they made it a two-possession game. Dolphins had no timeouts, under three minutes left. It's a wrap, you know? So the, And especially the way the Chargers defense was playing, it was a wrap. So that was... The best drive that the Chargers had all game that they could have possibly put together. They came away with points to make it unreachable, and they wasted all the clock, or most of the clock, all the Dolphins timeouts. It was perfect, Uh, and a nightmare scenario, obviously, for the Dolphins, because you can't stop them. You don't want to let them score, obviously, but it's just, there's nothing you can do. You're completely out of your reach, out of your control, and... The Dolphins, two tough losses in a row, obviously losing to Brock Purdy, who hey, hey, Brock Purdy might be you look what he did to the Bucks this Sunday, like you're feeling a little bit better if you're a Dolphins fan by that loss, you know. So uh you lose to the Niners, then you lose to the Chargers. Now you're sitting at uh eight and six, eight and five, eight and five, and you have the Bills next week. Not, not great. That's tough. That's going to be really, really tough. Um, the Dolphins the rest of the way. What do they have? They have the Bills, the Packers, the Patriots, and the Jets. So after the Bills, you you would think they could handle the the Packers, the Patriots, and the Jets. But who knows? Um, last time the Jets and Dolphins played, Skylar Thompson was was the quarterback. So. Uh, I mean, the, the Jets played the Bills really, really hard for a second time. They split that season series, one-one. But that this defense for the Jets is like remarkable. They they are really, really physical, tough, great in pass run protection. Oh my God, they're just they're just phenomenal. We'll get we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Um, honestly, probably, let's talk about the Jets now. Like why not? Because we're gonna then we'll get into the Giants. But the Chargers, big win for them. They're seven and six, still in the hunt and obviously the Tua versus Herbert narratives are dampening dampened a little bit after this performance where Herbert clearly just completely outclassed Tua and the Dolphins offense pretty much by himself um so the Jets the Jets lose 20 to 12 to the uh, to the Bills only allowed two offensive touchdowns uh to Buffalo to Dawson Knox and then a Josh Allen run Uh, two field goals from Tyler Bass is enough to put the Jets away. 20-12 was the final score. The Jets got a safety uh, after a blocked punt that went out of the back of the end zone and a Greg Zerline field goal with under a minute and a half left in the game to make it 20-12. They just couldn't keep up offensively. I think Mike White, for what it's worth, plays like a dog out there every game, man. He leaves it all on the field. He got... Absolutely blasted by Matt Milano. Milano came up the middle, untouched, form tackle, perfect form tackle as Mike White is throwing the ball. His shoulder pad goes right into Mike White's gut, and you see White literally like he he turns into a 45 degree angle, bro. Like he gets folded. And you could tell just the, all the wind was knocked out of his head, of his lungs, man. He was on the ground just trying to breathe properly. He got rocked. Uh, credit to him. He did come back into the game. He did finish the game. Um, actually, I think he got hurt previously and then came back into the game. And then he just got clapped there by Milano and had to wait a couple mi- uh, minutes to get back on his feet. But he was fine. I-, I give him a lot of credit, man. He's played pretty well. He's done a lot. That he can. I just that Bill's defense is really good. Um, and I I just don't think or you know, who knows? Maybe in the next uh in the next couple weeks, the Jets will figure it out a little bit more offensively. This was only a second game starting, so uh maybe they'll see some more. I really like the Zonovan Knight kid. He's pretty good, man. Undrafted, rookie, running back, uh replacing Brees Hall, but he's got a little something to him. He's he's pretty nice. Three weeks in a row, he's been pretty uh he's been serviceable for this uh for this Jets offense and you know they need everything they can get 17 carries 71 yards and a touchdown for Zonovan Knight and that touchdown run was really nice it was really electric Book like three tackles on it uh, Garrett Wilson's for real obviously but this is a tough matchup Jets are 7 and 6 but they're they're a nice 7 and 6 man they're still in striking distance of the playoffs as are the Giants but honestly I think the Jets might they they, they might look a little bit better than the Giants like they have Maybe more to be hopeful. for. like, that's a top five defense in the NFL. Giants play hard, but they don't have a top five defense. And the Jets have more weapons offensively than the Giants do. Because at least they have, you know, Garrett Wilson and Elijah Moore. Giants don't, they, they don't have any receiver better than those two guys. Although, shout out to Hodgins. Hodgins is looking pretty, look pretty good, all things considered. But a tough game for the Jets. Played really, really hard against the Bills. Um, couldn't upset them this time in Buffalo. But Bills go to 10-3. and Jets go to 7-6. and And the Bills have a two-game lead in the AFC East now with four games remaining. And they play the Dolphins next week. Basically, to lock up the... Uh, I would imagine that's to lock up... Oh, it's on Saturday! We have Saturday football? Oh my god! Oh, my God. I didn't realize Saturday football was starting in week 15. Who do we have? We have three games on Saturday. Oh, I love it. I love Saturday football. So we have Thursday nights, 49ers, Seahawks, Saturdays, Colts, Vikings, Ravens, Browns, Dolphins, Bills. Woo! I love it. I love Saturday football. Oh, my God. All right, so that's exciting. Anyway, uh, moving on to the Giants. This is going to be short outclassed like the the start I mean the Giants might be a playoff team at 7-5-1 and now after this loss to the Eagles they might be a playoff team but they are not in like you, you talk about separate classes of playoff teams this is what that extra wild card spot might really do here is you know the Eagles are gonna get a first round bye but when it comes down to it like the, that third wild card team is just going to be in a different class from the like the top seeds in the in the playoffs. They just are, man. 48 to 22, but it wasn't even really it wasn't even really that. Um the Giants scored with less than a minute left. It was 48 to 14 with 3 minutes left in the game. They couldn't the, the Eagles seemingly have no flaws. Uh, their defense is spectacular. Like the the pickups that they got in the secondary on the defensive line, they could stop the run. They could, they, you know, they rush the quarterback extremely well. They have great defensive backs. They have great safeties. Uh, Miles Sanders is having a career year. He broke a thousand rushing yards against the Giants uh, on Sunday. So he's a thousand yard rusher. AJ Brown's a thousand yard receiver. Devontae Smith might be a thousand yard receiver. It's just they have nothing that you can look at and be like, well, they're kind of lacking in 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 that area or whatever. DeMonte Smith's at 775 yards, by the way, so he'll have to have a pretty solid next four games to get to 1,000 yards. But if he does, that's two 1,000-yard receivers and a 1,000-yard rusher for the Eagles. Oh, and then plus on top of that, you also have Jalen Hurts, who has thrown for 3,100 yards and has rushed for 686 yards on the ground as well. So he's just been fantastic. And this is like what they do, man. It's it's crazy. They get, you know, 300 yards on the ground. Who did they play when they got that? Uh, it was a couple weeks ago. The, the Packers. So they have 300 yards on the ground against the Packers. They have 300 yards in the air, over 300 yards in the air against the Titans. And then they rush for 200, you know, Jalen Hurts and Miles Sanders combined for 200 rushing yards. And then also Hurts passes for over 200 yards against the Giants. They just blow them out of the water, score 48 points. This game was over in the first half. So they have no glaring we- weaknesses at all. None. Jalen Hurts has officially become the favorite to win NFL MVP. A year ago, we were talking about if Jalen Hurts was going to be the guy for the Eagles. Does he have what it takes? Is he just a filler gap quarterback? What Are they, are they going to try and trade for someone? Are they going to try and draft someone? What are they going to do at quarterback? And Sirianni and the Eagles trusted Jalen Hurts. He made huge, I mean, saying he made huge strides this year is an understatement. The fact that he might win MVP now, when it's all said and done, the Eagles have the best record in the league. They're going to be the number one overall seed, Uh, and they—they're loaded with talent. Miles Sanders having a career year. A.J. Brown is—he's loving life as an Eagle. Devontae Smith is doing really well, and then Hurts is a freak. Their defense, their defensive line, their defensive backs, everyone's playing at a high level. And you know what happens when everyone plays on a high level is that everyone has confidence. Every single one of them is confident in the team to win. You know, Hurts, he's on a mission, bro. Like, he is unbelievable. He really is. So, I, I just, I got to give credit to, to him because last year, the Eagles went on a little bit of a roll. You know, they found their identity. They ran the ball a ton, Miles Sanders didn't find the end zone last year, I don't think. You know, they were, they were using three or four different running backs. Boston Scott, Gainwell, Jordan Howard was, you know, siphoning carries from Miles Sanders. Now this year, Miles Sanders came in as the guy. He's been getting a majority of the touches. He's over 1,000 yards. He's top three in rushing touchdowns this year. He scored two against the Giants. Top three rushing touchdowns this year. Career year for Miles Sanders cuz he's the guy now. Like they they're like all right, Miles Miles is our guy, which is why I don't really know why they thought he wasn't the guy, but um and they they're feeding him the, the football. And they did that, you know, last year they ran the ball a ton with Hurts and with their, you know, plethora of running backs. But making him throw was the secret to beating him. He was so inconsistent throwing the football. Last time the Giants and Eagles played, the Giants picked off Jalen Hurts 3 times. This time, he he has three interceptions all year now, and we're you know in week fourteen going into week fifteen. He has three interceptions all year. He's not the same quarterback. He's not the same guy making the eagles, you know, playing the eagles and being like, all right, we're gonna make Jalen Hurts throw to beat us. Yeah, he 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 made a throw against the Giants on Sunday that I was literally like, all right, this dude is this dude is is so much different. Man, he he's having a different kind of year. It was like a third and eight, third and nine. In Eagles are in their own territory. Jalen Hurts, he gets pressured almost immediately. He flushes out to his uh, his left, I think it was. And he's about to get tackled, at least it looks like. And then he makes this throw to the corner, to the sideline. That's just like... Right where it needs to be, I think Devontae Smith caught it, and it was just like a perfect, perfect, perfect throw under pressure, on the run, to the sideline. And it was great coverage. I think uh, Fabian Moreau was, was covering there, and he was glued, glued to this receiver. It looked like it should have been incomplete, they hung on it was like a, again a perfect throw and i was just like oh man oh man like even if the giants play you know if they get pe- they get pressure on them they play great defense in the secondary like this is these are the throws this kid's making man it it was it's insanity it really was so i just you know i i i watched the game but i turned it off in the fourth quarter i was like all right it's time to watch mostly red zone um I can't expect the final game of the regular season to be any different, especially because it's at the link. You got to think it's going to be so much worse. It's going to be so much worse somehow than a 48 to 22 loss at MetLife going to Lincoln Financial and playing them. It's going to be worse. You know, there's a shot. There's a shot that the Eagles don't play their starters in that game because it's the last game of the season. They'll probably have the one seed locked up by then. Um,. So there is a shot that they just rest everyone, but who knows? Or, you know, they let them play for a quarter or maybe the first half, and then they rest everyone the second half. Who knows? Um, But the Eagles, I mean, they have the Bears, the Cowboys, the Saints, and the Giants, again, their last four games. That Eagles-Cowboys game is going to be very, very, very fun to watch because the last time they played, Cooper Rush was a quarterback. Now Dak is back. Cowboys seem to be at full strength, even though they almost lost to the Texans. Bad, bad, bad. Naughty, naughty Cowboys. Really bad. Uh, the defense bailed you out there. So let's move on. Um, we'll go to that Cowboys-Texans game. So Dak almost single-handedly, I mean, couldn't say single-handedly. The, uh, the Cowboys, for whatever reason, were just playing horrible all game. Uh, the only one that seemed to be like looked Like they were, knew what they were doing was Tony Pollard, who had two touchdowns. Um, but the the Cowboys didn't play particularly well. Uh, Dak th- threw two interceptions. Uh, I think they had a fumble loss, maybe they were just turning the ball over. Um, and, and the, the Texans were just hanging around like they got off to a, a roaring start. And sometimes when overachieving teams like the Cowboys, who are nine and three at the time, now they're 10 and three play a team with one win against the texans they go in low energy you know think it's going to be a walk in the park they're just you're going to casually stroll in like we're so much more talented than them we're going to stroll in we're going to get this dub and we're going to go we're, we're going to go enjoy the rest of our day and the texans come in and they got nothing to lose they're going to go for it on fourth down they're going to run like these absurd plays. Jeff Driscoll came in and started running like quarterback keepers. He ran the ball 7 times. You know, they they're, they're going to do whatever they want. it's time to experiment. Time to see for, for fun, like just let's let's see what we can do out there, you know? And I think that they really just caught the Cowboys off guard. Um the Cowboys were 17 and a half point favorites in this game and I'm such an idiot because it's like that's such an outrageous amount of points. You ha- You should just take it every single time. Every single time there is a ten-point favorite, you should at least look at the matchup, and mo- in more most cases, take the points for the underdogs because they probably will cover almost every single time. This is the second time that I mean the Texans are always underdogs, but you know a couple weeks ago on Thursday Night Football they were thirteen and a half point underdogs against the Eagles and they covered. So it's just it's like almost a rule of thumb at this point, and for some reason I don't listen to it, but it's the truth. And backed up inside their ten, trying to lead a game-winning drive, Dak Prescott throws an interception, and the Texans have the ball at like the five-yard line. And somehow, some way, because at this point it's only a three-point game. The Texans try to win it. They're like, we need a touchdown. We get a touchdown, the game is over. And they tried to punch it in, and they couldn't do it. Dallas' defense somehow saves Dak Prescott's ass from losing to this 1-10-1 and football team. And they stop the Texans on four downs. They get the ball back, and Dak leads the Cowboys' offense all the way down the field for what ends up being, I think it was Zeke Elliott, ended up punching it in for a touchdown, and the Cowboys win 27 to 23. They avoid the embarrassing loss to the Houston Texans. Um, but what a fight Houston put up! What a fight! I, I, I tip my cap to them. Would I have liked to see the Cowboys lose? Yeah, of course, it would have been absolutely hilarious to see them lose to the Texans, no doubt about it. But, um, Dak got saved. He got a second chance to lead a game-winning drive, and he made the most of it, so good for him. But he has not really been playing too well this year, all things considered. Since he came back from his injury, he has not been playing that well. Um, Zeke and Pollard and the defense have been playing outstanding football, but like for the past couple years, man, I've been saying it, like Dak Prescott... When it comes down to it in the playoffs, when if if the Cowboys need a game-winning drive in the playoffs, I don't know how much faith do you have in Dak Prescott to lead that drive? Because I don't have much. He's proved he's proven that. To be fair, uh, you know it might sound a little mean, but you know I like Dak as a person and as a player. I don't root against him. I'm just saying, from the past and from now, especially how he looks now, like. I'm not really good for him for leading the game-winning drive against the Texans, but it's, how am impressed am I supposed to be that he led a game-winning drive against the Texans? You know what I'm saying? So I, I just take it with a grain of salt. I, I I don't know how much faith I have in Dak Prescott come playoff time to to lead this Cowboys offense when he has to be the guy. That's all I'm saying. Next game, moving on. Um, Bengals Browns. Joe Burrow, finally, finally beating the Cleveland Browns for the first time in his career. I think it's absolutely hilarious that the first time he beats the Browns, uh, he they got you know the shit kicked out of them in Cleveland on what was a Monday Night Football uh, when Jacoby Brissett was the quarterback, and now in Cincinnati, Deshaun Watson's back, and the Browns defense. I mean, the Browns' offense looks absolutely broken and horrible. And for some reason, they stopped running the football with Chubb and Kareem Hunt because they think Deshaun Watson's, like, a god. He's hor- He's he's bad. He's not playing really well. But I don't know, like, what Cleveland expected. Um, I think it's hilarious that Burrow gets his first win against Cleveland with Deshaun Watson as quarterback. And you just got to love to see, you know, a guy like Deshaun Watson who's he's so... Great. So great. You you gotta love to see a, a guy like him struggle. It, it couldn't have happened... <laughs> that was all sarcasm, by the way. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, you know what I'm saying? So, he's looked bad. 14 carries for Nick Chubb is, like, outrageous. I don't, like... I don't understand. You're, you're only, you only lost by 13 points. It's not like this game was a blowout and completely out of reach to the point where, you know, you had to throw a bunch of times in order to get yourself back into the game. Uh, it, it, with two minutes left in the third quarter, you scored a touchdown. It was 20-10. to 10. Run the football. You have Nick Chubb. He's a top five running back in the league. I don't, I don't understand. The Browns, more so than any other team with a great running back, just sometimes decide not to run the football. They just stop. Dead cold in their tracks, they stop running the football. So I just don't get it. I really don't. And, you know, I do think, obviously, Deshaun coming back has something to do with it because there definitely is some sort of pressure for, you know, uh, Stefanski and the Browns to make it work with Deshaun because you traded for him, you gave him all this money, so they they have to play well. And now, um, you know, you beat the Texans without scoring an offensive touchdown, so you got lucky there, if, if we're being completely honest. And then you scored one touchdown against the Bengals, who are a very good football team. But now you're five and eight and you stink. Like you're not good. And I don't know if it's gonna change this season. Like, there's so many factors that go into the Browns, right? Like you had Jacoby Brissett. He is a leader in that locker room. The players respect him. He played, you know, he played his heart out to the best of his abilities. And he knew, like that, the time was coming. Deshaun Watson's coming back. They pay, they guaranteed him all this money. He's going to be the starting quarterback. And Brissett played about as well as he could have. I think maybe even exceeded some expectations for some. So Deshaun comes back. He hasn't been around the team. He hasn't practiced with the team. He has no chemistry with anyone. You know, he hasn't. Uh, he he just not isn't a part of the locker room. He isn't part of that culture. And the guys seem like they really were riding for Jacoby. And now Deshaun's back. They're asking him to do a lot. Threw 42 times against the the Bengals in his second game. Whereas you see Nick Chubb only had 14 carries, like I said. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. There is this huge expectation and this pressure. And Cleveland... This is not the first time these expectations and these pressures have mounted for this organization and for St- uh, Kevin Stefanski, Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham. Do you remember that when Odell was nearing his time at his end time at, at Cleveland, a huge it was a huge thing, you know, free Odell, free Odell, free Odell because Baker was not throwing him the football. The Browns were playing fine. They were playing good football, winning football. They were playing pretty much fine and it was just this Huge pressure from outside people to get Odell the football. And Baker just, whether he couldn't, didn't want to, or just flat out wouldn't, that is, you know, a question that is still not fully answered. But there was pressure to do that. And that's why inevitably Odell was released and he was able to go where he wanted to go. Um, But now it seems like, you know, we have Deshaun Watson. Let him do his thing. Call a ton of pla- passing plays. Let him you know, figure it out on the fly. Let him run around. Let him try and get a first down by himself. Use his legs, his mobility. Throw the football. I have no doubt that after an entire offseason going into next year, Deshaun Watson's going to be fine. That's the reason why they structured his contract where he's only getting a million dollars this year because he missed you know, 11 games, 12 games, or 11 games, 12 weeks, and... Uh, he, uh, everyone knew he wasn't going to be playing well because he was suspended. He wasn't allowed to practice with anyone. He, there wasn't going to be any chemistry. There wasn't going to be any like well-oiled machine where he was just going to come and get plugged in and, <laughs> and just, uh, you know, end up being a great, a great player. He just, he wasn't. So next year is a different story though. Um, He, you know, full off season with the team, a full preseason workouts, Chemistry building, all that kind of stuff with the guys. He should, in theory, uh, retain some of his form that he did from, you know, but he hasn't. The NFL is a hard league, man. Any professional sport league, if you are out for two years, it is extremely difficult. Basketball is probably the easiest because Hoopers are Hoopers, you know? Like, if you just play basketball and condition yourself, you're going to be able to just get plugged in into the NBA and, and, and contribute at least a little bit but other major sports baseball football hockey if you're out of the league for 2 years that's a lot of skill that you can't just replicate by yourself like basketball you can replicate by yourself as long as you have a hoop you can do drills you can do sh- you know you can shoot around you can keep your, your keep your touch keep your jump shot your mechanics Fine-tuned and stuff, and then eventually you'll find yourself on a roster and you'll be able to play, and you know, and, and learn whatever system you're in, and and contribute, you know. Football, baseball, and hockey—you can't do that. It's way more team-oriented than it is individual-oriented. So to be out of a league for two years and then asked to come back in and and be the guy, you're you're asking for failure, and that's pretty much what the Browns have. It's it's a failure of a year and for obvious reasons and i think most people probably if you're if you're not completely you know delusional you probably saw this coming like <laughs> sorry <laughs> but yeah you you probably saw it happening um with Deshaun showing up and and being rusty to say the least Burrow and the Bengals are the real deal. I love them. I I I might take them to win the Super Bowl. I love them, bro. I love them. It just feels like you can't lose. Mike Greenberg, I just saw this sick edit on TikTok. Um I'm sorry I didn't like the video so I'm sorry that I, whoever made it, but Mike Greenberg went on this like little rant on Get Up where he talked about these three guys in the AFC, Burrow, Mahomes, and Allen where they're all superheroes. Josh Allen is this Big imposing body. He'll run. He's a quarterback with a huge arm, but he'll also run over you. He's like Superman. Patrick Mahomes does these crazy throws that you've never seen anyone make. You know, he's amazing. He's like spider-man And then Joe Burrow, who doesn't have the arm talent that Mahomes and uh, Allen have. He's not big and mobile and strong. He's not going to run you over. He's not going to outrun you like Mahomes and Allen can. But somehow, someway, he wins just as many games. He plays just as well as the other two. So he's Batman. And I was like, that's sick. That's sick. Oh, my God, because I love me some Batman. So I'm, like, fully on board with the Bengals and Joe Burrow and and everyone. T. Higgins, the Bengals did this thing again with T. Higgins specifically because they did it against the Ravens where he had a hammy issue throughout the week. He had no injury designation heading into Sunday. He played one snap or one series on offense against the Ravens, and then was on the sideline the rest of the game because he like tweaked it a little bit and he didn't want to play. He couldn't play, so they held him on the sideline. Zach Taylor today, uh, you know, after the game says, "Yeah, we lost T. Higgins in warmups. Had no injury designation going into the game, and they lost him in warmups. I had him in my starting fantasy lineup. It would have been nice to know that before the game that way I can like replace him. Not that the win would have meant anything for me." Um, I'm still in the playoffs in my fantasy league, but it's still like, you know, t- you gotta, those are things people gotta know, you know what I'm saying? So he, he just, I hope he's okay going into next week. Um, not just for my fantasy purposes, but be also because I really enjoy T Higgins. I re- I think he's a terrific football player. And the Bengals kind of need him. They just got Jamar Chase back, so if they lose T. Higgins, now it's like, oh my god! And also, Tyler Boyd went down with a finger injury. He didn't return to the game. I think he broke his finger. So Chase is there, sure, but you don't now. You're playing with third and fourth string wide or fourth and fifth string wide receivers if Higgins and Boyd are out. Just a, a thing to consider. So next game, uh, what are we looking at here? Vikings-Lions, this was a shootout. The Lions were favorite at home, even though the Vikings were 10-2, and, and they delivered. The Vikings could not stop this Lions offense. They've won four of their last five. They're six and 6-7. They've been playing outstanding football. Jared Goff has been a well-oiled machine. Jameson Williams' first career catch is a 41-yard touchdown from Jared Goff, so that was super cool. That was the first touchdown of the game With, uh, you know, five minutes into the game. That was a 41-yard bomb. Um, And they just... I mean, the Vikings just flat out could not keep up. And this Dolph... I mean, this Dolphins. This Lions defense, which was so bad for the first uh, 10 weeks of the season, 9 weeks of the season, whatever it was. So bad. They have... They're over this, you know, 4 or 5 that they have. Their one loss being to the Bills on Thanksgiving. Their defense has been great. I mean, they even played well in that loss, to be fair, as well as they could have. They just, you know, had one bad drive where Allen was able to lead him into field goal range. But the defense has turned it around completely. Jeff Okuda has been having, you know, he's a guy that a lot of people look at because he's probably their number one cornerback. And he's had a great turnaround to his career, which looked like, you know, it was kind of derailed to begin with with injuries. Aiden Hutchinson has been fantastic. The Lions got absolutely like Trayvon Walker's been all right with Jacksonville, but Aiden Hutchinson I think has been having the better year in my opinion. So Aiden Hutchinson's been great. Um yeah, like the Lions just they got a lot to look forward to, man. They really, really do. And Jared Goff's like Jared Goff's good. Like he he plays he plays hard. He plays well. I'm not gonna say he's like really good, but like He's serviceable, you know what I'm saying? He 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 can light it up on any given Sunday. He really can. He's he's still capable of that. People people forget and they look at him like, oh, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad, he's on the lions now, blah blah blah. People forget he he led a team to the Super Bowl. You know, that's not just a fluke. I feel like him and Jimmy G, for being quarterbacks that led their teams to Super Bowl, get pretty much no credit at all you know so i don't really think that's fair uh chris bassett just agreed to a 3 year deal with the blue jays so the mets lose him and now he's in the al east which sucks cuz chris bassett's pretty good um so that stinks all right now jaguars titans <laughs> funnily enough i bet on the uh the titans to win on sunday just money line just to win nine straight Road losses in Tennessee, the Jaguars have had. Nine straight losses in Tennessee. Dominated the Titans. Dominated. Trevor Lawrence had an outstanding game for as much crap as I give him, obviously. 30 of 42, 368 yards, and three touchdowns. Uh the Titans couldn't stop turning the ball over. Tannehill had an interception. Um, Derek Henry had a, a fumble that bounced right into Josh Allen's arms. It was heading out of bounds cause he was on the sidelines. He got popped, uh, cause he got spun around and his, you know, his front side got exposed and he got popped. The ball p- just came flying out and it went right into the hands of Jared Allen or, uh, Josh Allen. Excuse me. It, uh, Henry lost, actually Henry lost two fumbles. So Henry lost two fumbles. Tannehill fumbled, so three lost fumbles on the day for the Titans and an interception from Tannehill. Four turnovers. You're never going to win a game turning the ball over four times. And Jacksonville was able to take advantage. They ended up winning 36-22. to One of those touchdowns, again, this was like the final score is looks a little bit better than what it actually was because the Titans were able to score... Late in the fourth quarter. Um, Or not that late. It was seven minutes left in the game. But still. The Jaguars washed. They washed. So really embarrassing loss for the Titans. I can't believe it. But they've lost three straight. Two at home. They lost at home to the Bengals. Then on the road to Philly where they got embarrassed. And then they got embarrassed at home against the Titans. So they're kind of sliding a little bit. Luckily for them, their division kind of stinks. So at seven and six... Uh, they're not sweating too much, but you gotta right the ship a little bit here. Uh, you you gotta you gotta figure it out because now, again, it's it's not too it's not too bad of an issue. Again, your division st- I keep saying again, but your division stinks. Jacksonville is officially in second place at five and eight. Um, so you're seven and six. Gotta right the ship because the playoffs are approaching, and if you're gonna try and make a run. You got to get hot at the right time and right now they are not playing particularly well. Raven Steelers what a shit show this game was. I'm also never betting on this matchup ever again. Maybe never the Steelers ever again. Kenny Pickett gets knocked out of the game with a concussion and suddenly just like that we have a Mitch Trubisky versus Tyler Huntley matchup and the Ravens pulled it out 16 16- to 14 they go to nine and four pittsburgh is five and eight pittsburgh could not stop the run couldn't do it 120 yards on 15 carries for jk dobbins on the ground absolutely gashing the pittsburgh defense um and they just couldn't stop the run and that's all you had to do like make tyler huntley make the throws to his not very good wide receivers And things will be alright. Hundley threw the ball 12 times. 8 for 12, 88 yards. He ran the ball 9 times for 31 yards. So on top of that, the Ravens had a total of 215 yards on the ground. And that's all it took. Steelers couldn't couldn't stop him. They couldn't stop him. They scored late to make it a 2-point game. They never ended up getting the ball back, and, and the game was over. So not not great there. Never taking that fucking spread again, so, or that uh, that money line again when those two teams play because it's just so unpredictable, so gross, and disgusting to watch. Chiefs-Broncos, the Broncos, and Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson got nailed in this game, and he is concussed. He They might just hold him out the rest of the year, but they made a very nice comeback because this game got out of hand real quick. You know, with four minutes left in the second quarter, the Chiefs were up 27 to nothing. And then before, in in, a, in the next minute 35, the Broncos scored a touchdown, got the ball back, and scored again. Now it's 27-14 heading into the half. Broncos get the ball back. They score again, opening drive. Now it's 27-21. Um, and they do... Jerry Judy had three touchdowns this game, but the uh, Mahomes and the uh the Chiefs were able to score one more touchdown. That's all they needed. They ended up winning thirty four to twenty eight. but this is the most life that the Broncos have shown all year. Again, divisional matchup and stuff, but I, I do feel for Russell Wilson. He played a hell of a game. He got nailed, nailed. He had like a literal welt on his head. Um so I hope he's all right and he recovers quickly. I don't I can't imagine he's gonna play next week. Um, but what a game. Jared McKinnon, too. The Jared McKinnon game. Seven catches, 112 yards, and two touchdowns for McKinnon. Broncos defense, if there's anything to be happy about this year, I know the Broncos are officially eliminated from playoff contention and stuff at 3-10, and 10, but if there's anything to pay, take from this year, it's that Hackett's probably going to be gone. Your offense, ideally, is going to get way better and is going to show more of this throughout the year, but the Broncos defense is also really good. Yes, they gave up 34 points to Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, but they also picked them off three times. That's saying something, you know? This defense, and outside of this 34-point performance by the Chiefs, the Broncos' defense has been absolutely locked down for pretty much the entire year. Their biggest problem is that they just can't score points. That's all it is. So I, I give I give them a lot of credit um, for battling week in and week out. Bucks 49ers, this one's going to be ch- uh, very quick it was uh, 35 to nothing in the third quarter and the broncos i mean the bucks finally scored the game ended 35 to 7 brock purdy might be legit i mean the dolphins to come in and beat the dolphins on on sh- you know shorthanded not expecting to play he beats miami and then you know the bucks have had their struggles this year but it's still tom brady and that bucks defense isn't horrible but he was carving them up he had this unbelievable play where he... Uh, it was a, uh, a bootleg play action. He had one guy coming at had him, free rusher. He does like a stop and, and little back juke. Does a little swim move with the ball to get out. Runs forward and then throws on the run to the sideline for a first down to Debo Samuel. And it was just an incredible play. He was... I mean, he was surgical. This dude oozes confidence like he really does he brock purdy is what andrew uh, <laughs> is what drew lock thinks he is <laughs> drew drew lock remember how swaggy he was when he came in for the broncos and stuff and everyone was like oh he's got a little something to him no and he, but he wasn't good brock purdy is what drew lock thought he was brock purdy's got confidence and he looks like he's got the talent to lead this team into a playoff run he was 16 to 21 and again, this game got out of hand real quickly. Obviously, he's blessed with all this talent around him, but he was 16 to 21, couple touchdowns, um, incredible. He, he he played great. McCaffrey had a game too. 14 catches, 119 yards, or 14 carries, I should say, 114 yards on the ground, and a touchdown. I believe he also had a receiving touchdown as well. The bad news here for the 49ers. The good news for the Bucks is that they're still in the division lead, and they still have a chance to win the division and make the playoffs, which is crazy. This is probably going to be um, one of the rare occasions where we get a team under 500. Whether whether it's the the Panthers are five and eight, damn it, they beat the Seahawks. Right, the, the Seahawks. There's there's shot at seven and six now. I think, um, and I think they are now out of the playoffs, and the Giants and so the Giants and Washington are both 7 5 and 1. Dallas has that first seed, and then it's Washington and then the Giants. Now the Seahawks are the odd man out at 7 and 6. The Panthers are 5 and 8. The Falcons are 5 and 8. Um the Saints are 4 and 9. And then they have the Bucs at 6 and 7. Saints have an outside shot, but the Falcons and, and Panthers might come away and, and win this division. Like it's crazy. That division's so bad. Uh and the bad news for the 49ers, like I was saying, Debo Samuel definitely looked like it was an ACL injury, but it turns out it was, uh, I think it was an ankle injury, they ended up saying. He was grabbing at his knee. I think he just got twisted up. But usually when a player is down like that and they're grabbing at their knee, it never means anything good. But they escaped with a, uh, I think it was a high ankle sprain, They they listed it as. So he'll probably be out three to four weeks be back in time for the playoffs. So a huge disaster avoided for the 49ers because they've lost quite a few players to season-ending injuries this year. um, And luckily, Debo was able to avoid that. So he should be back for maybe the last week of the season, ideally the first round of the playoffs. I mentioned 49 ers Panthers. J.C. Horn is... Legit. like Panthers fans should be so excited to have this kid on his team. Uh, Sam Darnold, I guess, is back? I don't know, man. Sam Darnold was 14-24, 120 yards and a touchdown, but he played great. Uh, The the Panthers played really hard and really tough, and they came in and just physically outplayed the Seahawks. And when I say physically, I mean they were... Every single player, wide receiver or running back, whoever had the ball running with it, they were putting their shoulder down into this Seahawks defense. They were playing tough, physical football, and they ended up coming up with the win, um, 30-24, to an impressive win for the Panthers. Seahawks, again, they're sliding. These cracks are starting to show with Geno and everything. Um, and then we already talked about Dolphins and Chargers. My prediction here for Monday night, to wrap things up before we get into White Lotus real quick, Patriots, Cardinals, I think Belichick is going to have Kyler Murray in a goddamn torture chamber tonight, okay? I know this is the only the second time all year that Kyler Murray, James Conner, Marquise Brown, and DeAndre Hopkins are playing together. Only the second time all year. That means nothing to me. Absolutely nothing to me. I think Belichick, is. this is one of those games where it comes down to coaching. And I really do think that Belichick is going to put Cliff Kingsbury in an absolute clinic tonight. He's going to coach circles around him. He's going to have Kyler Murray and that Cardinals offense in a torture chamber. And I think the Patriots win by 10 points, 10 or 13 points. Okay, to wrap up. Uh, White Lotus season finale was crazy. So, turns out the body floating in the ocean was Tanya. Unfortunately, in the beginning scene, I uh, remember Daphne stumbles upon it. It was Tanya because there is a th- there the conspiracy. Now, it's not even confirmed, which sucks. We didn't even get an answer because she killed everyone on the boat, which was nuts. Uh, so so funny, though. So funny. Um, but we didn't really get an answer, but we can infer... So the gay cowboy lover that um, Quentin said was straight and he never reciprocated love, whatever, I guess was Greg, Tanya's husband. So then the theory starts to unfold. Greg left Sicily, was actually in communication with... Quentin, who is now broke, according to his not nephew, uh, and they wanted her money. But in the prenup, if they get divorced, he gets nothing. So they try to kill her. They bring in the mafia guys. It's all crazy. She like puts two and two together and starts to realize whether it's her own paranoia or actually true, which it does seem to be true because the mafia guy came with a duffel bag and she stole it and opened it up. And there was rope and duct tape and a gun. So, like, what can you infer from that, you know what I'm saying? And she kills everyone on the boat. Then she tries to escape in the, in, in the boat that the mafia dude came in. And she falls, hits her head, and drowns. An unceremonious way to go out for Tanya, but still so funny. So within her character, I think. And just the writing in this show is so, so, so good we finally get like Ethan confronting Aubrey Plaza, I forget his wife's name, about like what she did with Cameron, like did you sleep together? Did you hook up? blah blah blah. His detective skills and like his gut and his his natural instincts were insane to watch. He finally like figures out she at least admits to them kissing. The weirdest part about all of it is that it all ends up okay for the most part, you know? Albie gets fleeced out of 50,000 euros cuz he's an idiot and his dad calls him a mark and he's like i'm not a mark so he does it but now apparently you see at the end albie and then the grandpa and christopher moltesanti they all like turn their head looking at the same girl because they're all the same just in different ways and i think i talked about it on the podcast i don't remember but masculinity is like a huge theme in this movie um and Clearly, Lucia and her friend and the pimp wasn't actually a pimp. He was just a, a doorman at a hotel playing a role. It was all a con. It was all a ruse from the very beginning. She didn't care about him. It was all he was just a mark. Um, and he says at the end, like, yeah, she played me, you know. Um, and it, they're all the same. Alby, his grand, his dad, and his grandfather are all the same. You know, the grandpa is very much like in your face, old school unapologetic like he just says what he what's on his mind and it wasn't problematic at the time but it's problematic now so now he just looks like a like a little bigoted old man the dad you know he sleeps around he cheats all the time but he pays off people to you know keep it under rug sweep it under the rug try to keep his marriage intact and then the the albie the kid is like oh girls aren't bad she's stuck in a position blah 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 and even the grandpa says, like, Albie, sometimes women are just as bad as men, believe it or not. Like, she's just maybe in it for the money. Which, it turns out, he was right. She was just in it for the money. She wasn't just, like, some helpless little girl who was caught in, like, you know, a sex ring or, a, you know, a prostitution ring or, or something like that. She legitimately was just a girl who wanted money. And, and she got it. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. And it works out. For for them, her, Lucia and her and her friend, G, uh, what a Gianna or whatever, she gets the starring piano gig. Um, Valentina, you know, she finally gets her rocks off with a girl, and uh, that liberates her in a way from being like this very mean and, and and cutthroat like manager. She gets completely released, and now is like super nice to everyone, <laughs> you know. And then. Um, yeah, to, to at the end, I thought it was crazy. Like Ethan and Cameron fight in the water, and then Ethan and his wife Aubrey Plaza are sitting at the table together having dinner, and Cameron and Daphne show up, and they stand there like, "Oh, hey, you guys are eating. The, you guys are eating alone." And they sit down and join them, and they toast and everything as if nothing happened, and it was just so so bizarre. Uh, everyone ends up leaving. Oh, Portia also. I thought she was going to get killed, but, um, the guy who, uh, I forget his name, the uncle, the nephew, who's not really the nephew, and he was, cause he was sleeping with the uncle, quote unquote uncle, which was ugh, creepy. Um, he, I think spared her. I don't know if he was supposed to kill her or not. It felt like he was supposed to kill her. That way there was like no witnesses or whatever, you know, that's kind of what it felt like. But Whether it was mercy or part of the plan, he drops her off at the uh, airport and basically says, you know, go home because you don't want any part of people in the mafia and stuff. And you really think about what happened with Tanya. If she even did survive, she wasn't going to last long. You killed a member of the Italian mafia like she's not she's not leaving Italy. You know, she's not getting out of there alive. So it was all she was screwed from the very beginning once she, you know, started blast she came out blasting. Blah, blah, blah. That was <laughs> seeing Jennifer Coolidge like crying hysterically as she's literally murdering several people was so 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 funny. One guy does get away, and then also the um the driver of the boat gets away as well. Uh he lives. So two people live. I think she killed four people, three or four people, which is nuts, obviously. So pretty crazy. Uh, I think in terms of how like it stacks up to season one, I like this one so much better. I loved season two so much more. I just, I felt like the overall character performances were, were better and the arcs I found myself to be way more invested in the character arcs than I was in season two than I was in season one. So I, I, I would definitely rank season two above it. Um, obviously, I felt like, you know, the murder aspect of it was pretty was pretty cool. Like this little conspiracy that was unraveling for Tanya and stuff and her wealth and her money, which Greg ended up getting his way, even though if, if that's true, it could have all been in her head. Who knows? But, you know, everyone on the yacht's dead, so they're not getting their money. And Tanya's dead. So I guess Greg just kinda gets the money now. You know? Whatever. Um, also he said, I'll be back in a couple days. And how many, how many days went by? Like four or five. So it's pretty weird that she never like brought it up like, where's Greg? or whatever. Uh but yeah, it was I really, really, really enjoyed season two. I thought it was way better than season one. Again, I found myself so much more invested in the characters. Uh, of season two than season one. They were all way more... I don't know if it's because the actors were better or it's just the characters were more interesting or it was both, Um, but just the performances were awesome. I really, really enjoyed them. So season two, White Lotus, must watch. Ideally, you're only listening to this if you have watched it, because if you haven't, I just spoiled the entire ending of the fucking show for you, which is not great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. So, that'll do it for this episode from my point of view. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you, as always. I don't know if I said Albie's an idiot, but yeah, Albie's the biggest idiot in the show, for sure. Uh, Just a big old dummy who thinks he's like a knight in shining armor, and he gets women, and he's nice, and he's not the same as as his dad or his grandpa. They're all the same. And that scene at the end in the airport where they all check out the same woman is kind of it's that it's Mike White's way of showing you they're all the same just in different ways um also Mike White he's he's fantastic very 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 good writer and director for this show like fantastic stuff from him um I think he said they're making a season three I hope they're making a season three make as many seasons as you want honestly if they're all going to be like this it's just it's riveting television really really is I, I just love how all the plot lines always connect and stuff Um, But yeah, anyway Thank you all for listening Appreciate you as always Uh, Have a good rest of your week and weekend And I'll talk to you all next Tuesday